Good morning, everyone. Uh, the first case for today is State versus uh, Abbott and Alberin, and we will hear from the appellant. Please the court. I'm Gordon Widenhouse representing Daniel Alvaran. Um, at council table with me is Ann Blyman representing Cindy Abbott. We're before this court representing the defendants in their appeal as of right from a decision of the Court of Appeals where there was a dissenting opinion. I'm going to be making the main argument for the defendants and will like to try and reserve five minutes for rebuttal, which Ms. Blyman will give. trial court deprived Daniel Alboran and Cindy Abbott of the right to present a defense by prohibiting them from introducing relevant evidence that two other people could have committed the crime. The evidence that the jury was not allowed to hear pointed directly to two specific people, Ashley Phillips and Tim Tim McCain. It was more than sufficient to create a reasonable doubt that Abbott and Alboran were the people who killed Lucy Feimster. The excluded evidence was relevant under Rule 401 because it went directly to a key issue in the case, the identity of the perpetrators, and it tended to make a material fact an issue more likely than it would have been without the evidence, and that is that someone other than Albrand and Abbott were the perpetrators. And because this evidence was compelling enough to create a reasonable doubt about the identity of the perpetrators, its exclusion was prejudicial. And as the dissent below cogently and correctly explained, it could have led to a different result. When the excluded evidence is viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant, as it must be at this point, and when the evidence is viewed through a proper relevancy lens, it is clear that the majority below and the trial court erred. Thus, this court should reverse the conviction, adopt the dissenting opinion, and award Mr. Al Alboran and Ms. Abbott a new trial. As the offer of proof in this case showed, and the offer of proof is primarily on transcript pages 659 to 665 and 680 to 682, this excluded evidence would have shown the following relevant facts. First, Ashley Phillips had been beefing with Lucy Feimster prior to the murder. That is some evidence of motive. Second, Phillips and Tim Tim McCain were seen together in the apartment complex parking lot just before the murder. Some evidence of opportunity. Third, McCain was wearing a dark coat and a white t-shirt, which was consistent with what the eyewitness said the male perpetrator was wearing. Again, evidence of opportunity. Fourth, the day or two days after the crime, Phillips went to the police station in the car that was seen in the parking lot um, just before the murder. Fifth, Phillips had in her car a 25 caliber pistol, which was consistent with the caliber of the spent shell casing that was found in the bedroom where the victim was killed. And the arrest warrant in this case specifically said that a 25 caliber weapon was used. That's on record page 10. Sixth, Phillips had white latex gloves in her car, which were consistent 
with the late, the eyewitness testimony that the male perpetrator was wearing latex gloves during the crime. And seventh, the eyewitness told the police that a picture of Phillips looked like the female perpetrator. Those seven things are direct evidence of motive, opportunity, and means. So I think your friend for the state <clears throat> is not going to dispute that part of your argument. Just say that although the evidence may incriminate the third parties, it doesn't exculpate your clients and therefore doesn't meet the test for admissibility. Well, so what's your response to that part? Well, my response to that, if that is the way the court interprets the rule for third party guilt, it's inconsistent with Holmes v. South Carolina. Holmes v. South Carolina is clear that a state rule of evidence about third party guilt, you can't just look at the strength of the state's, the state's evidence. You have to look at the quality of the defendant's proffered evidence as well. And so if you read the rule, or if this court articulates the rule that it's got to exculpate the defendant, well, then we have, a dis we have to decide what exculpate means. Does it mean it creates a reasonable doubt? If it does, this evidence creates a reasonable doubt and it should be admitted. If it does more, if it requires more than exculpate, if it requires more than creating a doubt as to the defendant's guilt, I think the rule is inconsistent with Holmes v. South Carolina. And the way the court says you have to do evidence of third party guilt. What's your response to the aspect of some of the uh, demographic and physical characteristic differences between uh, the description that was given by Gregory and the uh, suspects that were ultimately convicted as compared to the individuals that you've identified uh, that could have committed the murder? Well, we don't know exactly um, the physical characteristics of McCain and Phillips. There are some potential differences between the description of those two people and the descriptions of the perpetrators as testified to at trial. But that goes to credibility and weight of the evidence. It doesn't go to inadmissibility of the evidence of third party guilt. Again, I, I don't mean to you know, repeat myself, but the rule of evidence cannot be read so restrictively as to prevent a defendant from offering favorable evidence. Chambers versus Mississippi says so. Crane versus Kentucky says so. Holmes versus South Carolina says so. So there, there may be differences and distinctions, but that doesn't mean the evidence is excluded. Weight of evidence, credibility of evidence is something that the jury is supposed to decide. We, we base our whole system of justice on and our, and our entire rules of evidence on the notion that, generally speaking, we want evidence to come in because we want the finder of fact to have all available pertinent evidence at their disposal to decide what happened in a particular case. And so there may be some distinctions between the confidential informant's description of who he saw in the parking lot and the eyewitness's descriptions of who she saw in the apartment. Again, that goes to credibility and weight, not to the admissibility of the evidence itself. We want the jury to be able to look at all this and make a determination about what the facts are. And I think if the court reads the trial court's analysis of how, what the trial court does when this comes up, and procedurally, 
keep in mind that this issue arose after the trial was underway. And I think at least one and maybe two witnesses had already testified and the state files a motion in limine. He said, well, it looks like the defendant's going to start talking about evidence of third party guilt. So we need to be heard about that. So the, the trial's already underway and it is the state's motion in limine that the trial court's ruling on. And the <coughs> trial court says when she's ruling on the evidence, I'm gonna take the evidence like most favorable to the state. That's wrong. You take the evidence like most favorable to the non-moving party. Summary judgment, like most favorable to the non-moving party. Motion to dismiss, like most favorable to the non-moving party. Motion in limine, trying to keep evidence out. You should look at the evidence in the light most favorable to the non-moving party, or at least a neutral fashion. And the trial court is explicit. I'm gonna look at the evidence in the light most favorable to the state. That's wrong. And when the Court of Appeals majority did its analysis, I hate to be colloquial, but I'm a bit colloquial anyway. It just puts in a great big block quote from the transcript. You know, it's about a page and a half. That's the, that's the Court of Appeals majority's analysis. Exactly what the trial court did. Although, I think it ellipses out, taking the light most favorable to the state. So if the trial court is basing, I mean, if the Court of Appeals majority is basing its decision on what the trial court did, it's looking at the evidence in the wrong way in terms of the burden of proof. You ought to be looking at the evidence like most favorable to the defendant because that's where the excluded evidence is coming into play. And if the issue comes up a couple more times during the trial because the defendants want to, are trying to cross-examine um, one of the officers about um, a pistol, they're trying to cross-examine about other types of evidence and the trial court cuts the defense off and says, you can't get into detail about this Lorsine pistol that was found in Ashley Phillips' car that has the same caliber as the spent shell that's found in the bedroom. You can't get into those details because I've told you you can't put in evidence of third-party guilt. So you can't go into those details. I mean, that has just got to be wrong. I mean, I can't put on my evidence about the, whether the pistol is the one that fired the fatal shot because I've been told I can't put in evidence of third-party guilt. And I can't put evidence of third-party guilt because I can't show these people were the ones who committed the crime. You know, I'm pistol-whipped and can't, I can't win in that situation if I'm told you can't go into the details of the pistol because you can't put in evidence of third-party guilt. And I can't put in those third-party guilt because I don't have anything physical or specific connecting them to the crime. I've got motive, I've got opportunity, and I've got means in this case. And there was, and again, it's part of the proffer in the case, there was an, an agent for the state, I believe her last name was Min, M-I-N-N, who examined the pistol and the spent shell casing that was in the bedroom where the victim was killed. She initially said, well, I can't tell. Send it off to somebody else. She gets it back. They said it's inconclusive. And she says, and this is the proffer, well, I don't know. It looks like it could be. So if you take the evidence the light most favorable to the defendant and relevancy is relatively lax and you've got a firearms person saying, well, 
the spent shell casing, and there was only one shot fired. The spent shell casing could have come from this Orsine pistol that was found in Ashley Phillips' car. How much more direct evidence would I need to, to at least have the jury consider that these people could have committed the crime? And that evidence um, was excluded. Again, if you look at transcript pages 674, for example, trial court shuts down the defendant's effort to introduce this evidence. And at one point says, on page 679, this is from the trial court, well, I think this is just going to kick up a bunch of dust, a bunch of dirt. I guess one person's kicking up a bunch of dirt is another person's reasonable doubt. I mean, this evidence should come in so the jury can decide who committed the crime. I mean, there's certainly sufficient evidence to convict Abbott and Albrand, no doubt about that, but the, the question here is not sufficiency of the evidence. It's the exclu wrongful exclusion of evidence that somebody else could have committed the crime. I draw the court's attention to State versus McElrath, which is the, I think, the key case explaining Rule 401 relevancy in the context of a criminal case. McElrath says, you take evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, and it's an easily satisfied standard, particularly easily satisfied, this court says, in a criminal case when it's the defendant offering the evidence. If the standard is relatively lax, as McElrath says, and particularly easily satisfied, as McElrath says, this evidence should have come in certainly meets a relatively lax, particularly easily satisfied standard. And I would point out to the court that this court reversed the conviction of McElrath because of the, some excluded evidence, and when the case went back for retrial in Hayward County, McElrath was acquitted. So it's clear that this kind of evidence makes a difference. Evidence of third-party guilt, I think, can be some of the most powerfully relevant evidence a defendant can have. I'm sitting at council table with a lawyer and the jury's looking at me with a lawyer having been charged with a crime. The most powerful evidence I could have, other than perhaps DNA that would exclude me, is evidence that somebody else committed the crime. Because the jury always wants to hear, hold somebody accountable for a crime, especially a heinous crime like in this case. You want to hold somebody accountable and the only people you can hold accountable are the, are the two people sitting at council table because you don't have any evidence that somebody else could have committed the crime. If the evidence was only there were a whole bunch of other people in the apartment parking lot the night of the crime, that doesn't point to a specific person, of course. And if the evidence didn't show anything other than these two specific people were there, perhaps that's not enough. But Ashley Phillips has a gun that's consistent with the spent shell casing in the victim's bedroom where she was killed. That makes it sound like Ashley Phillips may have the murder weapon. Murder weapon's never found in this case. So that evidence is very compelling and very relevant and certainly fits the relatively lax standard in uh, McElrath. Just for the court's benefit, I'd like to sort of describe some of the things the jury heard and some of the things the jury didn't hear. The jury hears eyewitness identification of Abbott. 
the jury doesn't hear that the eyewitness said a picture of Phillips looked like the shooter. They didn't hear that. They didn't hear that Phillips was in a car in the apartment at the, uh, at the apartment at the time of the killing. Phillips' picture is not put in a photographic array by the police. We know the jury heard that the male perpetrator wore white latex gloves. The jury didn't hear that Phillips had dirty white latex gloves in the glove compartment of her car at the relevant time. We know that the victim was killed with a small black gun. Phillips had a 25 caliber Lorsine pistol. Police find a 25 caliber shell in the victim's bedroom. We know that according to the eyewitness, black female shot the victim. The informant which the jury didn't hear about, says that the female who was with McCain did the killing. That's Ashley Phillips. McCain's at the apartment a minute before the murder. McCain's in the car with Ashley Phillips. The jury doesn't hear any of that. The jury knew that the male perpetrator supposedly wore a jacket and a white T-shirt. The jury didn't hear that McCain was in the parking lot at the time of the murder wearing a dark coat and a white T-shirt. And the jury didn't hear that Phillips, the female at the apartment complex, was beefing with the victim before the murder. The jury didn't hear any of that evidence. And all that evidence is points directly to the guilt of another person. And certainly would leave a jury having a being less than fully satisfied and entirely convinced of the defendant's guilt. That's what reasonable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, means, according to our law and our jury instructions. The jury has to be fully satisfied and entirely convinced. I think it is a difficult argument to make to suggest that if the jury heard all this evidence about Phillips and McCain, that they would be fully satisfied and entirely convinced of the guilt of Abbott and Aubrey. Let me tie our case law with what Justice Dietz had asked earlier and ask you to uh, tie in what your theory is with our case law from the standpoint of making sure that we're consistent with what we said in McNeil and that is that the evidence at issue must be under the two-prong approach of McNeil inconsistent with the defendant's guilt how would it be that even if the jury had heard all of this evidence to which you point, that it would be inconsistent with the guilt of your respective clients? If, if Ashley Phillips has a 25 caliber Lorsine pistol and the 25 caliber Lorsine pistol is the gun that fired the spent shell that's in the defendant's bedroom, if those two facts are before the jury, Ashley Phillips is the one who committed the murder, not Cindy Abbott. If Tim Tim McCain is with Ashley Phillips and he's wearing uh, clothes that were consistent with what Alboran was supposedly wearing or the male perpetrator was supposedly wearing, it's not Alboran in the apartment, it's Tim Tim McCain. Is that a straight line? 
deduction, especially in light of the fact that there was a third party that had made a telephone call at some point to the individual who was described as the uh, tall Hispanic male from the standpoint of perhaps why you say that, and this is hypothetical, the fact that the 25 caliber gun must have been used by Ashley Phillips if there is this evidence that is brought in that you say was inappropriately kept out, then perhaps it was used inside the apartment by the defendant that was charged and Ashley Phillips ended up with it if she ended up being the one that was the third party that was involved with a telephone call in terms of doing something with the weapon. Well, I would say, Justice Morgan, that that is an incredibly unstraight line to get to that point. Um, with all due respect, there's not any evidence that Ashley Phillips shot somebody and then, or that somebody shot somebody and Ashley Phillips then got the gun. There would need to be some evidence to suggest that happened. That, and I would, I would sort of flip it around this way. If I was before the court saying, you kept out evidence that, well, this person might have given the gun to this person, and so my client's not guilty, I think the court would say, and probably rightfully so, that's not evidence of the third party guilt. You don't have any evidence that that exchange happened. I mean, I suppose it could have, but there's not any suggestion that it did. There's no indication that Abbott's fingerprints are on the gun. And the evidence is Abbott didn't wear gloves. So if that happened, Abbott's fingerprints ought to be on the gun. If that happened, Abbott's fingerprints ought to be on the spent shell casing because the state's evidence was this gun had to be loaded bullet by bullet. So she would have had to put the bullet in, and if there was another bullet in the gun later, that means she would have taken that spent shell casing out, and her fingerprints should have been on it. State didn't test the uh, black flip phone that, the, um, that Ms. Gregory had, although it was handled, according to her testimony, by the female perpetrator. They didn't test another um, phone that was in the apartment, even though apparently the female perpetrator touched it. They didn't test any of the swabs that they took from the scene. They didn't look for fingerprints on the gun or the shell casing. I mean, I think that Justice Morgan would sort of suggest it didn't happen that, that Cindy Abbott shot somebody and then gave the gun to um, Ashley Phillips. Now, there is testimony that there was a phone call that um, I think uh, the male perpetrator took while he was in the apartment. Something about, she wants to know where you are. You're supposed to be here. You know, that does not at all suggest that Ashley Phillips wasn't the female who had her gun and shot the victim in this case. And the jury, again, it's not the defendant's burden to, to cross every T and dot every I. The jury gets to make this assessments of credibility based on the evidence they hear. The jury gets to hear what's tested about this gun. The jury gets to hear what's tested about this spent shell casing. And 
It may be that there were other people involved in this incident. The only thing that suggests that is that one phone call. But that doesn't mean that Cindy Abbott and Daniel Albram were the two in the apartment. It's a stretch to say that. Counsel, I'm sorry. Are, are you contending that other than this phone call, there is no evidence that the defendants here committed this crime? Other than? The phone call you just mentioned. Well, there's eyewitness testimony. I mean, they're, they're identified by an eyewitness. And the cell, cell site location information? The cell site location puts them in the vicinity, yes. But again, the fact that they're in the area doesn't mean they committed the crime. And again, our issue is not that the evidence was insufficient to support the conviction. Sure, there was evidence against Abbott and Albrand. There was eyewitness testimony. There was cell tower testimony. They, were, they knew each other, and they were, at least they were talking to each other, and they were in the area. But the jury needs to assess that evidence against or with the evidence that two other people could have committed the crime. And again, Phillips isn't included in the photographic array. And when you look at the key cases, and I know you mentioned McNeil, I think if a court looks at State versus Cotton and State versus Israel, both cases where this court reversed convictions because of the exclusion of evidence of third party guilt, the evidence of third party guilt in, of the, uh, in those cases wasn't any stronger than the evidence of third party guilt in this case. I think in Israel, the third party is on a video at the apartment complex where it happened and had done some other bad things. And this court said that was enough and reversed Israel's conviction because that was excluded. There was evidence in Cotton that somebody had committed a similar crime in the same area a day or two before or after the crime. This court said, that's enough. That evidence should come in. And, you know, the, the thing we know about Cotton <coughs> is there was eyewitness testimony in that case, and it was wrong. And we know it was wrong. And the fact that there is eyewitness testimony standing alone is not enough to exclude evidence of third-party guilt. Is it enough to satisfy the sufficiency standard? Of course, but it doesn't mean that the evidence of third-party guilt is excluded. In fact, if the court were to say, well, because there's this evidence of cell site, cell phone connections, and there was eyewitness testimony, therefore the, the test evidence of third-party guilt is excluded, that would flatly contradict Holmes v. South Carolina. I mean, Holmes in that context I hate to say it's on all fours because we don't talk like that anymore, but it's essentially on all fours on that kind of issue. Just because the state's evidence is strong and compelling isn't sufficient reason to keep out evidence of third-party guilt. I commend the dissenting opinion of the Court of Appeals in this case. Now, of course, I commend it because it's on my side. There's no doubt about that. But if you read the majority's analysis of the third-party guilt issue, basically a page and a half, which is mostly a block quotation of the trial court's analysis. And you read the 16-page dissenting opinion, the, six, the dissenting opinion runs circles around the majority's analysis. It's compelling, it's cogent, and it's convincing. 
and this court ought to adopt it and award Albrand and Abbott the new trial they deserve. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. <laughs> May it please the court, Laura McHenry for the state of North Carolina. This case involves the application of a well-established evidentiary rule. The trial court properly applied that rule and this court's precedent in granting the state's motion in limine. There was no error and this court should affirm the lower court's decisions. To find otherwise would be to allow a criminal defendant to parade before the jury every potential every individual who police investigated and then eliminated as a suspect in order to cast doubt on their own guilt. Our evidentiary rules are designed to ensure fairness, and this, this rule does just that. To be admissible, guilt of another must both inculpate a third party and exculpate the defendant. When looking closely at the record here, it is clear that the excluded evidence did not would not have met that second prong, and it was properly shielded from the jury. To do what the defendants are asking this court to do, you have to glean from the excluded evidence that Ashley Phillips and Tim Tim McCain were the perpetrators that were inside Ms. Gregory's apartment who murdered Lucy Feinstein on May 24, 2016. But this theory has no legs. I would like to direct the court's attention to page 109 of the record. This is um, the supplemental report summarizing information that was provided by the confidential informant. According to this report, the confidential informant saw near the mailboxes of the apartment complex where Lucy and Ms. Gregory lived, a, a loud Honda near the mailboxes on the night of the murder. The CI, the, the confidential informant describes the woman in the Honda, but does not identify her as Ashley Phillips. We have no evidence at all linking the person in the Honda to Ashley Phillips at this point. Now the mention of Phillips in the bottom, maybe third of this, this uh, case supplemental report suggests that the confidential informant might have known who Ashley Phillips was. If that's the case, the confidential informant would have said, I saw Ashley Phillips in her Honda at the mailboxes, but he doesn't identify Ashley Phillips as the person inside the Honda. Instead, he describes her as being light-skinned with short-cut hair and she had some weight on her. So this suggests that Tim Tim McCain, who very loosely matches the description of the male assailant being a male with a white t-shirt and a jacket, is with someone who does not match the description of the female assailant. Meanwhile, the information about Ashley Phillips that's provided by the confidential informant is that he knew the victim's family was trying to pin the murder on Matt and this girl because they are already beefing. Again, this girl is not identified as Ashley Phillips. It might be, but if it is, then, it's, then the confidential informant is linked linking this Matt Montana to Ashley Phillips, not Tim Tim McCain to Ashley Phillips. Then he goes on to say the victim's own sister Candace 
was also beefing with the victim. And in the days leading up to the murder, had told her sister she wished she was, she was dead. So as the trial court notes on page 682 of the transcript, this confidential informant is kind of all over the place. He's conveying three different theories about who might be responsible for this crime. He's got Tim Tim McCain and the woman in the Honda, Ashley Phillips and Matt Montana, and also Lucy Feimster's sister, Candace. So my question about that is, doesn't all of that go to, isn't that a jury argument? Doesn't that go to the, to the weight of the evidence, the credibility, and isn't the, isn't the trial court improper on this motion? I'm looking at page 667 of the um, transcript where the trial court um, first gives us the site from um, State versus Cotton that the evidence must tend to both implicate another and be inconsistent with the guilt of the defendant and then says, I understand that taking the evidence in the light most favorable to the state at this point, the question so far, and then he goes on to um, summarize the proffer, um, but it seems clear that the trial court is taking the evidence in the light most favorable to the state, and, and surely that's wrong as a matter of law. Yes, Your Honor, I think that was a misstatement. And, and aren't the facts that you are eliciting <clears throat> about the potential weaknesses in the evidence of um, that, that someone else might have been in the room and committed the murder, aren't you also asking us to take that evidence in the light most favorable to the state? I'm not, Your Honor. All we're doing at this point is discussing the evidence that was excluded and how it simply does not, it doesn't support the defendant's position here, that it was Tim Tim McCain and Ashley Phillips who were the two people who were in the apartment that night. But, but isn't the question we have to answer whether it was relevant? Yes, but it's also, it's a unique evidentiary rule in that it's not just a Rule 401, you have to take into account Rule 403. And even though the trial court judge, I think, misstated how the evidence should have been viewed, I think it's correct, it, it was not correct to say it should have been viewed in the light most favorable to the state. Based on the rest of this, um, excerpt, the 667 to 669, you can see the, the reasoning of the court, and the court follows the, the two prongs of the rule, and also this court's precedent in State v. Cotton and others, to find that in this case, the evidence of guilt of another did, did not exculpate the defendants here. It is very possible that another person was involved, as we've discussed to, today already. The defendants, the, the assailants in the, in the apartment were on the phone with another person. That person might have been Ashley Phillips. That person might, that might explain why there were latex gloves in her vehicle. But that doesn't put Ashley Phillips inside the apartment. That doesn't exculpate the defendants here. Well, except there was, there was other um, evidence that one of the witnesses said that a picture of Ashley Phillips could be, um, could have, lo looks like the perpetrator. Um, and and in, in assessing relevance, if the trial court has said on the record, I'm looking at this evidence in the light most favorable to the state, doesn't that essentially make clear they're fo following the wrong legal standard and that the analysis cannot be correct? No, and I'm glad that you brought that up because that, um, I do want to clarify that piece of evidence. Um, the person who said that Gregory, in viewing a photo of 
Ashley Phillips said it looked like her. That statement was made by counsel and it appears that it must have been made by some other family member. Some other family member cannot tell you what the assailant looked like. Miss Gregory is the only person who is the eyewitness to the two individuals who intruded, who came into her apartment and murdered her daughter. So when, um, when Miss Gregory was asked on the stand whether she ever was shown a photo of Ashley Phillips, she said no, I was not shown any other photos. When asked um, if she'd ever, when the court asked outside the presence of the jury if Gregory had ever identified Phillips as a suspect, defense counsel had conceded that she had not. If both sides in this appellate review agree that the standard of review is de novo and counsel you candidly said that the trial court administered the wrong uh, view in terms of looking at the evidence in the light most favorable to the state than it did to the defendants, isn't that uh, an error of law that's subject to de novo review and therefore by this court would appropriately be finding that there was error. I think you can, um, this court can acknowledge that that was a misstatement of law, but that under de novo review, they can re this court can review the trial court's analysis, it can review the Court of Appeals majority opinion, and it can affirm the convictions of Abbott and Alvaron. Based upon the error not being prejudicial? Is that the theory? No, the, the analysis, the application of the rule was correct. I think, Your Honor, that whether the, the evidence, the, the statement about the evidence being viewed in the light most favorable to anyone is not, um, it, it, it's not the, the linchpin in the, in the ruling. It's a statement that was made, but, it, but when you review the analysis, you look at, for example, the trial court judge referenced State v. Cotton. In that case, the defendant was convicted of rape and burglary, and the defendant introduced evidence that there were two other very similar break-ins and sexual assaults nearby um, in the, on the same night um, and, and that were committed in the same very similar manner. What the jury did not get to hear in State v. Cotton is that the, um, the victim in that case, when first shown a lineup, said, I think it's either suspect number four or suspect number five. The defendant in State v. Cotton was suspect number five. So there was some question about whether it was the victim was identifying number four or number five. The other piece of evidence that was excluded from the jury is that another one of the victims of that, those very similar crimes had identified suspect number four. That, Your Honor, is why this court found that the excluded evidence very specifically inculpated another defendant and exculpated this defendant. That's not what we have here. So what about your friend's argument that um, there's no suggestion that there were four people, four perpetrators inside the apartment. There's two perpetrators. So your friend's argument, as I understood it, is if, if the defendants have to show not only that there's, there are two other people with, for whom there's evidence, incriminating evidence suggesting they could have been the perpetrators, but also to show 
that they, those two defendants, were not in the apartment. That that second part, proving that, is already going to, uh, you know, is going to lead to an acquittal. You're, you're preventing them from really pre presenting any meaningful evidence at all because they would need, that burden would be so high in order to get the evidence admitted that they're already on their way to get to an acquittal. So what, how do we deal with this idea that the suggestion that these two other people did it, if there's only two people in the apartment, means that it's those two people and not the defendants. What, what do we do with that inference? Well, another piece of evidence that we haven't discussed yet this morning is that Ms. Gregory was in this apartment for a considerable amount of time with the assailants. She had an opportunity to observe the weapon that was used. And she described that weapon as being a small black gun with a brown handle. The 25 caliber pistol found in Ashley Phillips' vehicle was silver. It also was inconclusive in terms of being um, the same weapon that was used to murder Lucy Feinster. And the police investigated Ashley Phillips and eliminated her as a excuse me, eliminated her as a suspect. There's simply not enough evidence to satisfy this two-prong test that Ashley Phillips and or Tim Tim McCain were the perpetrators here. Well, how do we get there? I heard what you said about Cotton. I heard mm -hmm. that last statement. Mm -hmm. I heard your response to Justice Dietz. But how do we get to where you want us to go representing the state from this erroneous standard that was stated on the record? And of course, we're engaged here in record review. Mm -hmm. Trial court has stated an erroneous analysis in looking at the evidence that was excluded in the light most favorable to the state, should have been regarded in the light most favorable to the defendants. How do we view that and untie, to speak colloquially, that knot that has been tied by the, by the trial court that it had the wrong analysis to get to where the state would have us to go? Your Honor, I don't know of a case that prevents you from doing that. So my, the, what the state puts forth is that this court does, performs the de novo review. And, and performing that de novo review with deference to the, to the trial court, as the, the precedent requires, that the, the ultimate decision of the trial court to exclude this evidence because it did not meet the second prong is was correct. Deference to the trial court, albeit, again, trial court administered the wrong analysis. I think it's, there's, it's not the wrong analysis. We weren't applying the wrong rule, but I concede your point that there's this issue of viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the state versus in the light most favorable to the defendant. Now I will point out, I think uh, McElrath, which was brought up, is, is not a case we can rely on here. Um, and one reason is because there was no eyewitness in McElrath. Um, that makes a big difference. Secondly, I will read, I pulled out the first page of that decision because this court's opinion in McElrath says, the facts and circumstances surrounding the mysterious disappearance and death of Stephen Wade Boyer are amongst the most bizarre and unusual in the annals of the crime in this state. I think this case is an outlier. In my view, the case before the court today aligns more closely with um, State v. Rose. Now, in 
State v. Rose, the defendant had been staying at a campsite. Items started to go missing, another camper's camera, um, items from a nearby general store, and then two men were found murdered at the campsite. Their belongings were found at the defendant's campsite along with the other stolen items. There was also a gun found at the campsite that was consistent with the gun that caused the victim's fatal injuries. Now the defendant tried to introduce evidence that a police officer had made a comment that he thought maybe two people had been involved in the murder. Um, and he also had evidence that that other person was a, um, had been seen walking around with the defendant and, and at least knew about, if not was involved in the murders. But this court held that the trial court was correct in excluding this evidence because it failed to exculpate the defendant. And that's what we're talking about here. We have perhaps some evidence that two other individuals were involved, but the evidence of their involvement does not, it is not inconsistent with the evidence of the guilt of the defendants here. I also think um, State v. McNeil is instructive. I just, I'm still struggling a little with this idea of what can we make of the argument that if there's only two people in the apartment and the defendants are saying, here's some evidence that incriminates these two people, which would mean by inference, they're the two people in the apartment, that the next step in sort of inferential logic there is that means that we, the defendants, were not the two people in the apartment and that that would satisfy the second prong, that would exculpate the defendants. Do you just think that's a step too far? You say that your, your argument is that would collapse the two parts of the test and you can't do that, is that? I'm, maybe I'm not following the question. So, so, um, so if you have some evidence that two people, incri incriminates two people yes. in, as the perpetrators, then the two defendants, and there were only two perpetrators, then the defendants would say, well, that satisfies both prongs. Because if they did it, they must have been the two people that did it, which means we couldn't be the two people that did it. That shows the exculpating side of the, of the two-prong test. But I take it your argument is that would collapse the two parts, and you would only have to show the incriminating, the third party's prong. So you need something to show in this evidence to show we, that actually affirmatively shows we, the defendants, did not commit the crime. Is that what your argument is? That's correct. But also, Your Honor, to do what, what the defendants want you to do here, <coughs> You have to not just decide that it could have been another female assailant and another male assailant. You have to believe that it was Tim, Tim McCain and Ashley Phillips. And there is not evidence that links them to each other or to, to being inside the apartment. Uh, counsel, isn't it also, or couldn't you also argue that because um, of the phone call made by the male perpetrator that there is reason to believe there might have been other people involved and therefore it's not surprising that there might be some evidence showing additional um, or involvement by other people. That's exactly right, Your Honor. And, and that's, that's where this additional evidence that someone might be involved does not exculpate the defendants here because it's very likely that there were others involved. Um, perhaps driving a, you know, a car, a getaway car, um, and that person might have been Ashley Phillips, but that doesn't put Ashley Phillips inside the apartment. And so that doesn't exculpate the defendants here. You've talked about the eyewitness identification uh, of the individuals. Uh, the fact that it, uh, there was a prior description 
and then the description ends up matching the eyewitness identification, uh, what, what relevance does that have? Can you tell me what you mean by prior description? So they ask Miss um, Gregory to describe the assailants. Uh, and she described a tall Hispanic uh, man uh, with uh, a uh, uh, African-American female, dark complexion, shoulder-length hair, uh, and then uh, it's my understanding that the uh, defendants here uh, matched those descriptions. Uh, what uh, weight or relevance should we give as we look at uh, this eyewitness identification? In this case, Your Honor, I think eyewitness identification is, um, is very important because this isn't um, you know, a, a short window of time, a, a sort of I was nearby and I saw this person walking by. It was she was in this apartment with the two assailants for some considerable, considerable amount of time. Then immediately following the murder, when the assailants fled the apartment, she immediate she described the assailants to police in the in the manner that you just said. So are you asking us to hold that as long as there's strong evidence of guilt, that other evidence that someone else might be the perpetrator cannot be admitted? No, I would not go that far. And I think that's what exactly what the Supreme Court said in Holmes, that's not, a, that's not allowed, that's a step too far. Right, so isn't talking about the eyewitness identifications and who it matches, and isn't that evidence of these defendants' guilt, but, but it doesn't necessarily negate the relevance. Not, again, it's, it's relevance, not, the defendant doesn't have to prove that the evidence that someone else uh, committed this crime proves they committed it beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just a question of whether it's relevant, isn't it? With respect to this, this very narrow question on appeal, yes. It's a question of relevancy and whether it should have been admitted. And I'll note, Your Honor, that in, in Holmes, the Supreme Court observed favorably rules like the one we have in North Carolina that creates this two-pronged test for evidence of guilt of, another, of a third party. It's not just a just your run-of-the-mill 401, 402, 403 analysis. It's specific, and the reason for that is that it can be confusing for the jury. It confuses the issues. It misleads the jury when the defendant is allowed to present these sort of piecemeal, you know, it could have been this guy, could have been that guy, could have been this guy, could have been that girl, you know, when none of that actually either um, you know, surpasses this idea of speculation or conjecture or actually exculpates the defendant. Well, so as my understanding, the trial court said the first prong is met, and what we're arguing about here today is whether the second prong is a test of relevance or whether it's a high bar that excludes basically almost all evidence of that someone else committed the crime. I think the question here today is whether the trial court properly applied this evidentiary rule and this court's precedent. Now, I do want to point out in the dissenting opinion, which is, is the reason that we're all here today, um, the dissenting opinion, there's footnote six, I believe, and in that footnote, the court um, distinguishes, um, 
State v. Williams. Um, it's a 2002 case. Uh, and in that case, the defendant wanted to introduce evidence of a number of um, possible alternative suspects. The dissenting opinion only grapples with the first alternative suspect the defendant wanted to introduce. That person was someone who lived nearby who found the body and called the police. And the, this court in that case said, just because you live nearby and you're un, you know, unlucky enough to be the one that finds the body and calls the police does not make you a suspect. Then the second person was an individual who described what the victim's body, dead body looked like. Now the only way that person would have known what the dead body looked like is he either was involved or you know, or had been, you know, had been told by the defendant or something like that. And the court again said, look, this doesn't pass that second prong. What, ju what Judge Murphy was talking about in the dissent is the first prong. And what, what State v. Williams and the rest of the cases that are relevant to this court's analysis are the second prong. So getting, getting back to my question, uh, it does seem like as we look at the proffer, uh, we have to consider what evidence was there that the um, that Phillips and McCain were in this uh, were actually went inside the apartment, mm -hmm. and the fact that neither uh, fit in any manner the eyewitness description uh, should, I would think have some bearing on the trial court's analysis. Uh, what, what bearing should that have, that the two alternative individuals don't meet any of the description that was given? I, I mean, Your Honor, in that case, that, that I think goes to also the first prong, that maybe that, that there's not enough evidence to even put them, to even suggest their involvement. But, it, but it's second, certainly, demonstrates that that evidence does not <coughs> meet the second prong. It does not exculpate the defendants. It, it, there's no evidence that puts Ashley Phillips and Tim Tim McCain in the apartment. I mean, at, at the end of the, the day, we have to determine if what was proffered is too, uh, maybe use the term too speculative to uh, uh, present to the jury that these individuals uh, uh, could have, uh, that the, the evidence would show that these individuals uh, would have committed the crime. I mean, that's what we're looking at in the second prong, right? Right. So as we assess the proffer, the defendant's evidence, uh, we certainly are looking at the bar of what is what would be speculative versus uh, relevant uh, being shown to be more likely than not that uh, these folks' involvement would exculpate the defendants. Right. Is that a fair way to, yes. to say that? Okay. Yes. Well, I have, a, I have a slightly different question. That is, if in similar cases, our court had found that evidence analogous to the evidence in the proffer was sufficient to go to the jury on the question of a, a defendant's guilt. 
wouldn't that make it fairly clear that this was relevant evidence that this jury should have heard? Is there a case? Right, so, which, another, which, so I, I'm, I'm just asking, if, if we previously decided that evidence that someone had prior, had prior conflict, it was in a beef or <laughs> was, uh, um, had some conflict with the victim, mm -hmm. and that, that the person who had been in conflict with the victim was in the proximity of where the victim was killed, and that that was enough to go to the jury on whether or not that particular defendant had committed that crime, wouldn't that also be suggestive that in this case, the evidence implicating the other two individuals was relevant to whether they committed the crime? It could. And I think the closest case to that, Your Honor, is State v. Miles. Now, I want to acknowledge up front that at the outset that Mr. Widenhouse is correct that this court did not review the issue of third-party guilt when it affirmed the defendant's conviction. And I trust Mr. Widenhouse is very familiar with that case because he represented the defendant in it. Um, and I apologize if anything in the state's brief was inaccurate or misleading to this court. But for the sake of clarity and fairness, I think we should point out that the Court of Appeals did address it and the defendant sought review of that issue, um, if, sought discretionary review of that decision from this court and this court denied it. So that that case is still good law. And if we look at those facts, they are similar, Justice Earls, to what you just described. There was a defendant there whose um, RV was seen pulling away from the defendant's home. There had been money owed, and there'd been plenty of complaints about how the victim owed this defendant money, and he was gonna come get him um, if he didn't get his money. And what the defendant wanted to introduce was evidence that the wife had the victim's wife had recently learned of his infidelity and that there was an impending divorce, that, um, that she was also home at the time, and he said she, all she would have had to do is step outside and murder him since his body was found close to the house. So in that case, the, the trial court and, and ultimately the Court of Appeals said this evidence of motive and opportunity is not Counsel. enough. I believe your time's expired. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Thank so you very much. much. Rebuttal. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I can provide any any clarity with some of the the questions that were answered. I mean, the state mentioned the issue of fairness, which is really what this case is about. It's a fundamental fairness case, no matter uh, how things were decided, how the wording was decided by the trial court, which again, applied the wrong standard. At coming to a conclusion when you're, you're starting off on the wrong foot, it just uh, entangles the whole decision by the trial court and then the Court of Appeals just adopted that decision. Uh, but I, I do want to say one of the things about this case is this is a concept at trial by the state. There are two people responsible for the crime. And so if the defendants were allowed to present evidence that there were these two other plausible people, then that evidence would have excluded Cindy Abbott and Daniel Albaran, which is why this case, as I said, is about fundamental fairness, about presenting a complete defense. And to say that nobody could tie 
Ashley Phillips to the scene is incorrect because the defendants did try to raise questions about exactly what the confidential informant saw and whether he was given an opportunity to identify Ashley Phillips by being shown a picture that was asked on the record in front of the jury. And of course, uh, the trial court wouldn't allow that evidence in based on the, the ruling that had been made. So I know my time is short, so I just want to say thank you for this opportunity from both the defendants and uh, please <laughs> reverse the decision of the majority of the Court of Appeals and allow uh, Cindy Abbott and Daniel Alboran to have an opportunity at a new trial to present the evidence that uh, could, the jury needed to hear to have a, a full opportunity for the defense. Thank you so much. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both, counsel.